Hello, I'm M. And I'm E. And welcome to Blood and Turf, a podcast about the links between the ideology of turfs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, and fascism, cults, pseudoscience, and other reactionary political phenomena. In this episode, we're going to have a closer look at how the transphobic political wave has used access to and influence over major political and cultural institutions. Obviously, all political movements attempt to influence society, but this episode will be an analysis of who they target and how they succeed. Basically, we're going to do a rather broad assessment and forecast of turf strategy, if indeed there is such a thing. While we would generally warn listeners that most of our episodes contain discussion of material that may be upsetting, and this episode is not necessarily an exception, the subject matter in this episode will be a bit more abstract than previous ones, so it's going to be more broad strokes and less gory details. Before we get cracking with the, with the main body of the episode, we do have a few updates from Cult Watch. Um, it's been a while since our last episode, and loads of stuff has happened in the interim, from Rosie Duffield continuing to be an idiot in the Labour Party, to, of course, the US election. Um, we're not going to do a rundown of all of the news that relates to transphobia, but there were a few interesting highlights from, like, transphobe Thunderdome we thought that might be worth at least mentioning. Plus one thing that we think is interesting from the point of view of just, like, analysing the British turf cult. Um, so there's, there's a legal challenge in relation to women's prisons. So I was informed that... Um, so listeners may or may, may not know that currently if uh, if you if you are incarcerated as a trans person although it, uh, more often as a tra uh, trans woman even if you have a grc uh which is the only way which you can be housed in the correct prison sometimes that that gets overruled and you're placed in the wrong prison anyway i have been informed that there is currently a legal kind of challenge brewing with turfs about the ability of trans women to be housed in the correct prisons at all so currently if you have a grc you can be housed in the correct prison, though not always. Uh, whereas it seems like what the TERFs want is for, obviously, the GRC to become completely pointless and obsolete. In similar news, there's also kind of like a new parliamentary inquiry. This isn't going to be like the previous um, consultation that happened over the last, like, couple of years. A hundred um, years. Sorry, a couple of hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> it only seemed like it. Um, no, this one is going to be like... Um, a closed parliamentary inquiry like conducted by MPs which does kind of like raise the possible spectre of like some Joanna Cherry style grandstanding not by Cherry herself um, but um, just like general kind of like committee room theatrics by anyone who has an axe to grind also I they'll just be like the general bullshit of it dragging things back into the spotlight again I will point out however although it is a closed parliamentary inquiry they are still just like last time, seeking viewpoints, and just like last time, the TERFs will be trying to pack that, and if you do not have the energy as a trans person, that's absolutely fine. If you're a CIS listener, you should fill it out. Um, they're looking for people from organizations rather than individuals, so if you know any kind of like, you know, like Stonewall always do it, your local council might do it, a random charity might do it, that is unfortunately still like a thing that is needed. Very bad um other stuff that came up oh yeah i guess like one interesting like recent thing which is a an amusing kind of echo of what happens here is that in the wake of them kind of like underperforming you know, on the on the down ballot races like in in congress and the senate um during um, the election yeah during during the election like a democratic congressman was interviewed i think on cnn or nbc um and went on like a massive rant against like the progressive left in the democratic party and specifically 
um, blamed a focus on transsexuals, which is an interesting way to put it and does kind of highlight that although like institutional turfitude isn't as like rampant in, and like aggressive over in the States, it is still present within progressive institutions. Yeah, and, and although, you know, uh, there were several trans people elected to various seats during this election, um, I would not be surprised if uh, that is something that, like, the Democrats particularly lean into because they're going to need someone to blame for centrism being fucking useless. And that's kind of exactly what Keir Starmer has done. And, you know, Keir Starmer and, Keir Starmer and Joe Biden aren't the same, but they are both devoid of personality uh, and devoid of any political kind of uh, theory, so... It is notable they've also deployed like rather similar strategies against relatively similar political opponents um, yeah. in that like they're doing the like sit back and wait for them to make a mistake. And as we've seen with Biden, that had very mixed results. So the jury is out on whether the US will completely adopt the turf shit in their, in their politics discourse, but I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they do make a swing towards it. Hopefully, if we are if we are correct here in our like blood and turf industries highbrow analysis as to why the UK is like a fucking spore pit of turfs, it would indicate that there might be a little bit more of an institutional inoculation against that nonsense over there. Yes, we will have to wait and see. Unfortunately, so the other big thing on Cult Watch is um, yet again Posey Parker. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rosie Parker has, you know, continues to do like live stream grifts and all that. And one of her more recent ones was quite interesting. Um, she does these kind of like, you know, like little 30, 40 minute things on YouTube um, and, you know, gets a few quid for each one. Like we've mentioned in our, in one of our previous episodes about, I think it was the cults episode when we mentioned like the live stream grifting model. And the most recent one is quite interesting because she mentions, she's kind of, we think this is kind of like a, a tipping point moment for, for Posey because she's gone from being a right-wing liberal to being a UKIP person and is now leaning seriously into like BNP territory. Um, yeah, several, several times she, she, we listened to the live stream, unfortunately, and M pointed out like the things she was saying were lifted straight from 8chan and, and, and places like that. Yeah, there was there was stuff about like um, a lot of a lot of like hand wringing about like Charlie Hebdo type culture war stuff to do with like depictions of the Prophet Muhammad and like freedom of speech, which is like a very well known Islamophobic dog whistle and like a way to kind of like agitate. It's a very good like agitational tool because you can like point at these highly emotive incidents of like people getting murdered, and then make a moral comparison to like somebody producing um, a cartoon. And that way you can kind of like advance an Islamophobic discourse. It's kind of similar to the, like the kinds of uh, rhetorical models that transphobes use, obviously. But that was also kind of like lumped in with a generalized, more like aggressive and more like substantial left bashing, which was focused around basically an angle that like, oh, there's all of these people who've been talking about how like dangerous white right-wing males are and, and like how dangerous Trump is over the last few years. And Posey Parker thinks that they're essentially all like lying and they're just trying to attack people who would be so bold as to dare to be pro-life. Um, and this is a woman who, although she, I don't think she's ever defined herself as a radical feminist, is like, has truck with people who still think of themselves as radical feminists in the trans exclusionary movement. And in this talk, she's talking about how surrogacy is wrong. She uses the phrase DNA mother and is very like doing this whole pro-life, pro-family stuff. And then she also talks about, she just, she, she basically hand waves away Trump's misogyny and says that half of the stuff about him isn't true. 
Right. So this was a quite an interesting bit in the in the talk because what she what she started talking about is essentially this thing where she's going like, why do I always find myself defending Trump when I'm not a Trump fan? Which sort of got us to start giggling. And one thing that's kind of like come up on the timeline over the last few days is that there's actually been like quite a lot of TERFs who've woken up on the day after election day where the, the results are still like trickling in, in, indicating that Trump's completely fucked. And they've noticed that everyone on their, on their supposedly like radical feminist timeline has suddenly turned into a huge Trump supporter. And it's like, well, what did you think was going to happen, you geniuses? You're actually following 8chan Nazis. So that's kind of the reason that we've included this in Cult Watch is because like em says it's like a tipping point for all of these like turfs that we've seen go down this like turf to fash pipeline uh the the bottom turf pipeline and it's it, I, it, I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens and how much of a splinter this becomes obviously we're hoping that it just fucking destroys them and that all the liberal mums go back to like drinking prosecco at brunch because biden is one and things are good but there is a chance that unfortunately there might be like a, a, a greater convergence between the fash and the turfs than there has been so far yeah, it's, it's, it also has kind of like lifted up the mask a bit on how heavily interlinked those social media spheres are now. Given that, given that they're sufficiently interlinked that they've essentially seen their, seen their timelines turn brown in front of them and have suddenly been like quite shocked by this, it does indicate that the, the fascist creep was like quite far ahead by this point in time. Extremely far if, if someone who is like one of the poster children of turfism is is like you said like doing 8chan like propaganda shit on a live stream the thing i thought was quite interesting was when she starts talking about a video that she got sent of like trident uh, trident of biden uh walking around sniffing people's hair specifically young girls hair acute listeners who are deeply online and like twitter poisoned will know that there is a long-standing and like widely held opinion amongst like the radical sections of like the online sphere that Biden is a massive danger because he frequently has these like quite weird and creepy interactions with young girls on the on like the campaign trail and in his political life like there'll be a girl in a photo op who's like come there with her family to be like an adorable family photo op girl and he'll like lean down and like grab her by the shoulders or something and it's always dead sus but because it's dead sus, it's a fucking brilliant way for pedo-baiting type bits of like 4chan and 8chan to kind of dig their claws into, into a, a more generalized right-wing narrative about like elite pedophiles. Yeah, and the other thing which was uh, in terms of the fascist creep, uh, we're going to go into this a little bit later in the episode, but the links between the Heritage Foundation and turfism isn't just that they're a big like US evangelical kind of group. It's also um, in terms of their influence quite big, but <clears throat> specifically Posey speaks a lot on late term abortions, anti-abortion stuff, pro-family stuff. There's various other stuff that's in the, in the Posey, uh, in the Posey stuff. To be honest, her live streams are always interesting. There's a little microscope slide view of the deeply turf poisoned brain, but it doesn't do to dwell on people like that for too long. Certainly not on like a personal level, because you'll go mad. Uh, instead, we've decided to go a completely different kind of mad, and we've decided to go look at the big picture. We're going to be taking a look at institutions, how transphobes use, uh, attack, uh, inhabit, um, just generally interact with institutions in order to do politics, um, because it's an interesting view of how 
their strategies emerge. So we have looked at various institutions, which includes like um, uh, the 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 academic institution, um, the media, the government, all all sorts of things. One of the reasons that I wanted to start this podcast, you know, many moons ago is specifically because of this, because one of the things I notice from my trans siblings in the community is that we do focus on specific people too much. And it's both extremely depressing and also not actually that helpful. If, if you want to do kind of like anti-turf, anti-fascist, whatever kind of work, um, it is better to focus on strategy, even, even as it is extremely upsetting to hear people say and write awful things. Um, so... If you are a trans person who is still happy listening to this, uh, I hope that this is helpful in that way. So yeah, we are going to end up looking at like the media, um, certain specific groups within the media, like the BBC, uh, like the Guardian. Uh, we're going to look at like civic activism, act activism within like general uh, cultural apparatus, within like political parties, within think tanks, more governmental stuff like law reform, the GRA, the GRA, and of course like academia stuff. So we'll like delve into the the, the wonderful world of like Janice Raymond and Sheila Jeffries and all that kind of stuff. We should probably start with uh, the media because who doesn't love talking about the media? Big media. Big media. Should we start with Guardian? Guardian's an easy entry point, isn't it? Yeah, so, so the Grand has been for several years now, um, for trans people at least, and, and, and I, think, I, think, I think now most cis leftists do, do also agree, it's just it's been turf city for a while. And part of that is because of Helen Lewis, who people may know f just from being a turf, but is also kind of a longstanding feminist in her own right. She, re she has a book out at the moment, which is like uh, a history of feminism in 11 fights which apparently is actually quite good scholarship, which kind of makes us all worth, worse. Um, she used to be, she was recently complaining about Owen Jones because she used to commission him at The Guardian or, or whatever, but she, she had a big role in The Guardian. She also was the former deputy editor, editor of The New Statesman and is married to a Grand journo. Um, and even ran like a women's journalist networking thing uh, 10 years ago called like Booze and Schmooze. One thing that I think is an interesting contemporary example of Helen Lewis's bullshit is something that, that like Ash Sarkar of Novara Media highlighted literally the day before we recorded this podcast. Helen Lewis apparently has just not so subtly exercised her clout behind the editor's desk to imply that if you try to do uh, an article that is favourable towards trans people or like trans political issues she'll just spike it sarkar tweeted as follows uh, once i tweeted follow so I, once i tweeted something critical of trans exclusionary feminists and helen lewis after asking if it was about her made a reference to an article i'd submitted toward to i'd submitted for the new statesman with a heavy implication that she could get it binned if i crossed her uh, this is in reference to a, a, an ongoing political shitstorm in you know that relates to various different uk political figures like Ian Dunt and Helen Lewis and Owen Jones and it's to do with Helen Lewis getting booted from Cyberpunk 2077 and that kicking off another round of stupid discourse. Suffice to say Helen Lewis is a creep. And although the Grawn is like completely full of fucking turfs at this at this point if you if you search Trans Guardian every article is a garbage fire it is it is worth noting that like it did used to be just a couple of people like Helen Lewis, and then it reached this kind of tipping point where it just got to be like the whole thing is 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 a trash rag. There's like now you've now you've got like Hadley Freeman, Polly Toyley, yep. um, Suzanne Moore. They'll always 
there's always going to be like some bullshit coming from this clique. Yeah, and and especially because the Guardian has also gotten a lot more just fucking useless as being a leftist paper, they're kind of also more willing to accept kind of any person who wants to write shit about trans people as well. Um, thanks to like one leftist, um, uh, and I would say arguably like and. I wouldn't say that Helena isn't a feminist. Like lots of people say that TERFs aren't real feminists, but I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of them are like feminism has a trans inclusivity problem generally the same way that, you know, white feminism isn't not feminism. Spe- speaking of, um, speaking of uh, Owen Jones and, um, and the guardian, one of the other problems with the guardian is that a lot of leftists now, I mean, up until now, e- even though says leftists, kind of seem to agree that the guardian is very bad on trans stuff all still write for the guardian and 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 still kind of perpetuate the guardian uh they're not tough on turfs tough on the causes of turfs uh particularly um owen jones i think is is has either left the guardian or is trying to leave the guardian he has a patreon now and only fans something um <laughs> But, um... We're getting cancelled <laughs> that one. Um, yeah, Owen, Owen Jones is basically trying to start up his own version of Navarra Media, and reading between the lines, it does look as if he's getting pretty frustrated with the Grawn. But I don't, I don't think it really excuses him for hanging around this long because, like, he was essentially making the the um, long he was making the long march through the institutions argument whenever people were called him up on this on Twitter about about this kind of stuff, being like well, the Guardian isn't particularly good on this issue, I agree, but I, I feel like I should stay in there and offer a, a sensible left-wing voice. And it actually what happened is he just, just continuously got like getting rat-fucked in the most incredible way possible, which is like, they'll, be, they'll let Owen Jones have, a col- have like a column every like two weeks or something. And like, meanwhile, there's like four or five turf columns per month. Yeah, I mean, and at some point, uh, like, there have been periods in the Guardian's history where they have had an anti-trans article out basically daily. I think this is singularly worth pointing out, like, although I'm not saying that Owen Jones is a turf, part of the reason why the Guardian has just become like this is partially because of the left, kind of propping up this sort of, like, absolute bollocks by continuing to to write for the Guardian, and, 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 and to the point where the US Guardian... The staff at the US Guardian were just like, what the fuck is wrong with the UK Guardian? You're all terrible. And, and that wasn't a criticism of the turfs at the UK Guardian. That was a criticism of the Guardian as a whole. Right. With relation to like how like liberals and leftists treat the Guardian, they are like, I think clearly we're all quite, quite forgiving of it. Possibly because a lot of liberals and leftists kind of like grew up with their like parents reading the Guardian and they see it as like being, being the left wing paper which is no longer a useful classification. Uh, anyway, so like, yeah, the, the Guardian is generally seen as being like ground zero. And I think the way that it exists in like British media and political culture in terms of its relation to like trans politics and gender politics and LGBT issues is that in theory, it was meant to be like the middle bit of the wedge for, for like LGBT progressivism. Like you could particularly see this in like the late Blair era, like, like the late Blair eras and the Cameron eras uh, of British politics, when like the the Guardian was kind of like a vaguely Lib Demish newspaper back when the Lib Dems were a lot more left wing than they are now, and it's just it has just like undergone an ideological drift. It's been it's been dragged like quite firmly into like more right wing positions, and this kind of like speaks both to like a broader systemic state systemic change in like British political society, and also to these like internal organizational changes within the Guardian 
which have been like ushered in not just by Helen Lewis but obviously like quite heavily influenced by her and people like her where some people get like shuffled out and the percentage of people who get shuffled in are more and more of a particular persuasion to make like two comparisons it's kind of like the 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 content of the Supreme Court hasn't changed significantly, except it's like the, the fucking op-eds columnists are now increasingly more likely to be like turfy and on the right of the Lib Dems. Another comparison be like, uh, would be in relation to like the liberal and left-wing community's attitude towards The Guardian, which is that we essentially treat it in the same way that we treat the Labour Party, in that we're incredibly willing to forgive it of its sins despite the fact that it's clearly becoming a deep structural hindrance. Yeah, and, and, and this drift, you could argue, is due to, um, you know, if there was a tactic that you could point out in terms of media, like having this kind of turf entryism, if that's what you want to call it, has paid off big dividends. I think it is worth noting that it's not like this entryism has been particularly like directed in any kind of organizational manner in the way that like traditional entryism has been. It's more just been like a habitual shift well, I think when I was looking up uh, Helen Lewis's booze and schmooze thing, I think it's I think it's born of class interest specifically, and therefore doesn't need to be directed or organisational. Yeah, it's about it's like it's the selection pool from which people are are being drawn is like automatically fucked because that selection pool was like subject to gatekeeping long, long ago. That meant there was nobody who was trans or pro-trans in it. Yeah. Um, see also you know like the independent the times and so on and i think when you compare the guardian to the times for example you can kind of see this this structural position that the guardian occupies in like british news media what the guardian like will flip to the right on today was normal stuff in the times yesterday and was like bread and butter to the telegraph three days ago yeah it's very sim- it's very similar to that it, what's that quote about the labor the tories and and uh the bmp where it's like yeah it's that thing it's that yeah thing. yeah i think we quoted that in another episode actually it's a good quote it's a good quote it is a good uh, quote i can't remember who that's by it's by a significant british marxist i believe and i can't remember his name anyway yeah so the times is the other interesting example because you get uh people like uh, i don't know like say greg hurst who have these kind of like socially conservative positions who write in the Times, but the position of the Times is that it's, it is the UK's uh, paper of record, basically. Whatever the fuck that's meant to mean. That just means that it's influential in an established, in like an established manner. And accordingly, if something's in the opinion pages of the Times, it means that like people will be trying to push it in there in order that they can get it into the minds of the public as being like the absolute like moderate status quo position. Unfortunately, uh, stuff in the Times has been, has been increasingly unhinged over the last couple of decades in relation to like uh, disability rights, in relation to uh, immigration. They've generally followed the lead from the right and the far right, and it's been kind of like dribbled into them from kind of like you know the overlap with the Mail and the Telegraph, and now that's increasingly happening with like with trans stuff. It's not brilliant. It's bad. It's all bad. It's all bad news, folks. Regards to the Times, is that the paper that people kind of refer to now as like the, the? It it, it has a reputation of being a broadsheet, but isn't really in anything other than reputation. Right. Yes. Exactly. Um, that's pretty much exactly how it is. I would say like the only paper that I can think of that still 
both has the broadsheet the broadsheet reputation and does the broadsheet thing is probably the financial times <laughs> yeah this is this is yeah <laughs> Because the Financial Times is the only paper I can think of in the UK that still has any kind of intellectual credibility. <laughs> well, it's because you can't go too cranky if you're looking to look after your investments. You've got to keep some eye on reality. This is this is why Lenin recommended that people read the Financial Times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was right about that. Editor's note. It actually turns out it was The Economist and not The Financial Times, which is a bit disappointing because The Economist is now widely agreed to be a bit of a rag these days. In before we get cancelled for being Leninists. Um, we're not actually Leninists. We're not Leninists. Um, <laughs> the, uh, in regards to legitimacy as well, uh, and it, you've, got the, you've got The Guardian, which is kind of like the... the, the I guess, left legitimacy. But the most legitimate of all of the media institutions to British people is, of course, the British Bastard Corporation, um, which, as we have seen as of last month, has been absolutely, completely taken over by turf shite. Um, obviously, the BBC has gone extremely right-wing recently. Uh, it is not just against trans people. Um, but as of October, it came out that they had explicit anti-trans policies in place, which is extremely legitimized because they have this reputation of being an impartial uh, broadcaster. Whatever you get in there essentially gets accepted as the center. So if you can influence the line in the BBC, that's like a direct line to the Overton window, essentially. Right. So I think particularly, uh, so I, I have been looking at our, at our broadcasting percentages and a good chunk of our audience are Americans. And I think um, quite a few Americans have this view of the BBC, which is that, it's like much more reputable than it actually is. Uh, I think most of our British listeners will be completely, completely blackpilled on the BBC by now. Um, blackpilled on the BBC. British Blackpill Corporation. Um, we, yeah, like it's 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 no secret in in British society now that the BBC is a is a pretty much just a completely partisan organisation. Um, and it's not like a full like a government-run operation, but it is partisan to the government's line to a rather insulting degree. And you and 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 yes, it's not officially run by the government, but isn't the new head of the BBC like a, it's a it's a legit revolving door thing like the Americans have with lobbyists at this right. point? This is, it's, it's been packed with yeah, Tory ministers. So, so like the the I feel like the the relationship between the upper echelons of the of the BBC and like the Tory party and the civil service and the upper bits of the UK government is most well compared to um, the American government's relationship with the oil and petroleum industry. Where, like, you'll get people who are, like, who was Trump's first Secretary of Defense? Um, Trump's first Secretary of Defense was a former exec of Shell, I believe? Ah, right, okay. Um, I was wrong. It's actually the Secretary of State. So one of the first Secretaries of State under Donald Trump, I think his first one, was this guy called Rex Tillerson, who was promptly uh, given the boot uh, like a year later because he opposed Trump on some kind of um, international issue. I can't remember what the hell it was. Anyway, Rex Tillerson was um, a major CEO in ExxonMobil. And there's loads of other people like that, you know, like like Dick Cheney was obviously massive in Halliburton, uh, which isn't a petrol corporation, but it, it's kind of like the corporate revolving door. The revolving door between the BBC 
and um, particularly uh, bits of the government that focus on like media stuff. So it'll be like culture secretaries or stuff like and stuff like that. Or, or like the governor general will quite frequently be a former Tory. Like there was a rumor that the next governor of the BBC would be George Osborne. It's that kind of bullshit. And like, I, I think in light of that, um, that kind of is instructive as to kind of quite how concerning um, the BBC is like, air of legitimacy whilst not being really balanced and legitimate whatsoever at this point is because they can trade on that extremely well. And they, and they do like uh, the BBC makes most of its money from BBC world stuff. I think now, uh, like, which is essentially state at this point, it's almost becoming like state Tory soft power propaganda shit, I guess. And so for that to be very overtaken with like weird reactionary stuff is um, very concerning. Yeah, it's 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 bad. Like um, to understand why it's in this position, like the British political context, is that like the BBC has been at like the heart of the culture war in Britain since like for decades, like for as long as I can remember. Um, like the British, like the British Broadcasting Corporation holds this position within British cultural memory and like British political thought, where it is considered to be like one of the ultimate institutions of state. Like it, it's connected to the whole kind of like World War Two mythology. Like we call it auntie. Like the slang phrase for the BBC is auntie. It's viewed as like a as like a matronly maternal organization that like takes care of us. Um, or at least that's what that's like the propaganda image that has kind of like been handed down about it. It almost also has a kind of civil service role in the sense that people view working for the BBC sort of like as a, almost like a union job. Like you you work there and they they appear to aggressively train and promote their staff up through the chain so that you work there forever. Anyway, about the cultural war role of the BBC, like historically within particularly within my lifetime if the right wanted to make um, a push in terms of like shuffling the Overton window, they would generally do it uh, with a lot of like hooting and hollering about whatever the issue was. And then it would also be accompanied with false outrage about media bias and particularly like the bias of the BBC. One of the big mythologies around the BBC is that it is neutral in its coverage. It is like a, a non-partisan broadcaster. It doesn't it doesn't show favor to either um, to either major party. There's this kind of air of of detachedness that has been cultivated. But because the air of detachedness has been cultivated, that means that if you can attack that air of detachment of detachment of detachment, then you can make a push in the in the mind of the audience and in the mind of the general public that there's there is a a, a battle for like the reliability of our media. And this was going on like all throughout the Blair era um, when Gordon Brown was prime minister and then like just slowly ramped up and up and up when the Tories got into office and now it's like blended into the generalized collapse in trust of media institutions that we've seen over the last five years um, which means that the far right can like start well they have been doing this for ages this is all old news they can do all of this stuff about like uh, well, you can't show like left-wing bias in the BBC. Oh, all of these media types are doing like SJW bias stuff. It's fucking bullshit. We've got to stop this. Otherwise, the democracy, bad, no. Uh, and what you actually get is they start 
making it illegal for black journalists to go to BLM rallies, which is a real thing that just happened. Sorry, not illegal, like a punishable thing as part of like their workplace conduct. Yeah, it's very much, the BBC is almost the perfect example of the intolerance paradox, essentially, because they are meant to be impartial, that's what has allowed them to be taken over by right-wing bollocks. Um, the policy M is referring to is, uh, so the, the, as of October, um, this year, the BBC came out with banning staff members from having political views um, or supporting political things, which includes, and they specifically included trans people. So you can go to Pride, but you're not allowed to be pro-trans and BLM rallies. Uh, this has also been echoed in government regulations. The Tories basically made it, if I remember correctly, they've done essentially a shit version of Section 28 again, where you're not allowed to criticize the government. Uh, and again, that has been specifically used against trans people and against black people. The other policies that they have, that we discovered that they have this year, are also the fact that trans people can't be on the BBC, essentially, unless there's a turf on there with them. Like, they're just not allowed to be on it. Uh, and this came out when a journalist was asked, a trans journalist was asked to speak on something, and um, it was all fine, and then they were like, oh, well, we need to have this turf on. And he was like, well, I'm, I'm not going on if you, if you do that. And they were like, we need a cis female for balance reasons, and it was an explicit policy. Um, and of course, the implicit policy is that the cis woman had to always be a turf. The in 2018, so the turf specific kind of shit with the BBC has clearly been going on for years. But the first brewings of it were in 2018. Older BBC employees, like we were saying earlier, you know, it's 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 a job for life, and they do mentoring schemes. They set up like a women's mentoring scheme after it came out that the BBC had been fucking women on equal pay and equal opportunities. Uh, and it came out that all of the younger uh, female employees who are matched with older women as a mentorship thing in WhatsApp groups, they basically all just turned around and were like, oh, all of these older women are just turfs. We're not going to speak to them because we like trans people. Um, so this has been going on for years, but it's really as of very recently that they've gone full mask off with it and very much in line with the government doing the same. Yeah, it's happened. It's happened like within the same political context of big, big like media controversies over like BBC presenters just like dropping the N word in the middle of like ordinary broadcasts, quoting people, but still just like saying this shit um, and all of this kind of stuff. In general, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of bullshit over the last couple of years, like connected to the Brexit campaign. Arguably, a lot of it originated even with the Scottish independence referendum, where like the reputation of the BBC within Scotland took a nosedive because it was very much seen as like pushing the pro-unionist angle. And then in, when, when the Brexit referendum stuff came up, like the, the right wing really jumped on on this kind of like thing where the BBC was an, another establishment body standing up for the EU. So it's, it's happened in this in this very recent context of the BBC being put under a lot of pressure in relation to its coverage and its content. And it's meant that like some kind of change was always going to be made but the the momentum was very heavily from the right and from this like social reactionary position which meant that they could kind of like game the concept of free speech very effectively at this point other stuff that's worth noting about the bbc is that again there's this revolving door thing and like the british like british politics in general um and british like uh, civic activism includes a lot of like 
uh, micro parties. And there, one interesting thing we ran across was the, the Women's Equality Party, which did end up kind of precipitating some earlier turf stuff. Although it's not like, I wouldn't say that it's like a deep hardcore turf, but it has got turf, turfish components. Yeah, the Women's Equality Party was set up in uh, as like a collaborative project uh, that involved a few high up uh, BBC people, including, including Sandy Toxvig. Sandy Toxvig, as far as we know, isn't a turf. Uh, she's just uh, like notable as as like a as a, like a high profile uh, like cultural icon who's kind of like just potters around the media landscape doing stuff. I would say the Women's Equality Party is as turf as its it, it, as its base, which is essentially uh liberal uh rich like white women which like as we know a lot of the uh, a lot of turfs are that but not all of them are turfs right the women's equality party is very similar in terms of like who it appeals to as the lib dems yeah oh and going back to the bbc so radio bbc radio has a women's hour which has been going for absolutely decades right and this women's is another, this is another big cultural institution yes they do there are some bbc programs that have just been going since like world war Two. yeah and women's hour specifically has this kind of reputation for being politically neutral because it's supposed to be an hour for all women regardless of their political beliefs regardless of their kind of like race or class status or anything like that but women's hour has been hugely turfy for ages at this point um to the point where I, I had the misfortune of, of listening to it a, a year or so ago when recovering from a trans-related surgery. And essentially, every time that anything to do with reproductive health is mentioned or anything that could be intersecting with trans people at all, they kind of go on a bit of a turfy froth. And then when it's about other stuff, it's quite normal. And then it goes back again. Uh, and it's just become kind of accepted as part of this normal thing in the British media. Again, going back to the, the Guardian, to the point where the Guardian will just ask every woman that they interview about whether trans women are human beings. Right. The, um, the most recent iteration is them asking <laughs> Kylie Minogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kylie Minogue, they were interviewing her about completely random stuff. And then they were like, by the way, what do you think about JK Rowling, I think, was it? Or no, it's just us. I don't think it was JK Rowling. They asked her about like, what do you think about the toxic debate? Yes, that's it. That's it. Um, and, and, Kylie, and Kylie was like, uh... <laughs> yeah, this Australian pop star was like, please leave me alone, you absolute freaks. <laughs> it was quite funny, actually. <laughs> But yeah, this is kind of, this is for, for Americans, like this is why the British are so mad and why the British turfs are so mad is because like our main media institutions are all just essentially, at least some parts of them are just run by turfs at this point. And the BBC, it's worth pointing out, is a state in media institution. We all have to legally pay a fee to watch the BBC. Yeah, um, but if you, if you um, want to own a television, you have to have this thing called a television license because um, you need a license for everything in this fucking country right okay so technically the right to bear tvs is guaranteed in the constitution <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah so you pay there's this thing called the license fee you have to have this in order to have a tv set in your house uh and the money from the license fee is what funds the, B the bbc now obviously <laughs> Um, loads of people don't pay the license fee so there's this running joke in like british in like british culture of like 
the license fee collection people who like drive around in this van and like shove letters to your letterbox being like if you haven't paid your license fee we're gonna fucking break your door down son and you're gonna be completely fucked we're gonna um, shotgun your knees in reality in reality they have no legal powers whatsoever so quite a lot of people just don't pay the fucking license fee um and this also ties into the political pressure angle because it means that the BBC has arguably got a bit of a funding problem in some ways. Um, so there's this kind of like permanent unspoken question as to whether or not the BBC will be like privately funded or whether or not it will begin um, accepting adverts in a way much more aggressively to how it does now. Um, or if it will become state funded. So accordingly, that means there's, if there's a funding question, that means you can put pressure on someone. And it's particularly good if you want to put right wing pressure on them. Although famously, the Tories have basically said they'll let the BBC die multiple times. Yes, which is A, true, and B, a blackmail tactic. Yeah. Um, just th but it's all stick, no carrot. And for some reason, the BBC are happy to let the Tories take over anyway. Um, a well, classic yeah, British BBC, time. The BBC is run by Tories. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, seg seg segueing into uh, civic civic stuff because, as we've said, it's very it's very it's very porous. The kind of the boundaries between the general media, the BBC state media, the state itself, uh, you know, parties, micro parties, single interest groups, and this really is where most people will know British turf stuff from. Like people will know like the uh, Women's Place pressure group you know, things like that. This is this is really like where the kind of random number generator aspect of trying to push a turf populism that works comes into its own. Right. Me and E have been kind of like working with this concept in our heads that the way that like transphobic activism and turf activism has been kind of functioning in the UK is there's a lot of different iterations of it. There's like women's place, that, you know, like the Percy Parker lot. Uh, there's like more progressive-ish ones like you get uh, in the Grawn, there's like there's like completely batshit conspiracy theory type people like I don't know like say Jane Claire Jones or whoever. Um, there's ones that kind of like appeal more to the like the old school um, LGBT crowd. The all, all of the organisations that purport to be like pro like butch and pro cis lesbian and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And and then there's then there's kind of like the high Tory ones. So you've got like a lot of different kind of like general general flavours in 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 the in the, in the spice rack. And eventually, if you kind of like sort through all of these ones and these these things keep like throwing tactics and different kinds of different kinds of message at the wall, eventually they're going to find different ways of doing messaging that stick. And they've essentially been doing this for so long with such a wide variety of methods to do it with a reasonably heavy like base from these institutions that it means that they are beginning to selectively, by a process of elimination, get to things that work. So you do see this with the civic activists quite a lot, that you get like the Women's Equality Party is like quite Lib Demi and it goes very, very light in comparison to women's place on the turf stuff. By comparison, the Women's Equality Party really cares a lot about like swerf stuff. Uh, they're not very fond of sex workers. They really they hate like, sex workers. Yeah, they really like pushing like quite aggressive versions of the Nordic model. And then I suppose if you're going to talk about women's place, you've got to kind of talk about how they, how that certain section of the of the transphobic movement uses like lots and lots of rotating front groups that have loads of different names 
Yeah, which is why I can't really remember any of them because they're, they're, every time a new one pops up, like trans people go, oh dear, this is happening. And you take a quick cursory glance and it's usually got the same people in it. So uh, they blur together after, one a while, after a while. The reason that they have these front groups is essentially because sooner or later, uh, one, of, one of the people associated with it does like a fascism or says that they want to physically murder trans people or, you know, something that's a bit too gauche. And the whole point of these front groups is to keep an amount of respectability that allows them to rope people in and, and, and focus on these single issue campaigns. Uh, transgender trend is one that's been going for a while and is still around, as is women's place. Transgender trend has partially managed to stick around because it specifically focuses on schools. So it really pushes the tinny angle, which we've covered. So I'm, I'm not going to, you know, labor the point and, and women's place has partially stuck around, I think, because it mostly does merchandising. Also women's place was focused specifically on the GRA stuff. Like, it, yes, yeah. which has gone on for, for, for hundreds of years at this point. Yeah, um, gone on for hundreds of years. So, hundreds so of years. women's place has now, have now got like an organizational experience, which means that, which means that they are, Pillars of the community, and that means they can sell fucking t-shirts. And the, and and it's and the GRA thing is worth noting because, as many trans listeners will know, this is when the British turf obsession became really unbearable because it was the perfect kind of um, thing to for the turfs to rally around and to batter down the doors of the Guardian against because it was scaremongering about you know single sex spaces and it's this one area in which like you could argue that someone who isn't you know just a random kind of like I guess like a random cis mum might be quite scared of because it was focusing on things which actually are being threatened such as legal protection for women in the workplace are threatened because the Tories took away legal aid. So if your boss is sexist towards you, you have fuck all that you can do because because you don't basically uh, have any entitlement to representation at work, which means that it's essentially legal despite the Equality Act. Stuff like this is an issue, and they tapped into that by being like, yes, it's the fault of the trans people. And also the other thing is that if there's these big flashpoints and they can focus one front group on that, then it means that even if they do fold that front group up at the end of that flashpoint happening, they like there's a generalized organizational experience that develops within the movement. Yeah, and it's what allows people to go from just like six mates who meet up in Liverpool and yell at some people, at, which happened at the World Transform Conference a few years ago, to people having live streams, people taking transatlantic trips, and and like meeting up with funders and stuff like that. Right. So I guess I guess like the main comparison that that E and I had in mind was something that has become increasingly relevant to transphobes, which is this thing that we've imported from America. There's an organization that many of our listeners will have heard of called the Heritage Foundation. And in the context of transphobic politics in the UK, they've become rather infamous for having like generalized connections. The theory is probably quite a lot of funding has come through them with like transphobes at large, uh, in particular, like the, the, the kind of like the Posey Parker end of the transphobic block. The Heritage Foundation is an American think tank, uh, or at least on paper, it's, it's an American conservative think tank, and that's how it originated. But the way that it's been covered in the UK is arguably a bit misleading. The, the coverage has hyped up the fact that it's deeply fucked and deeply dangerous, and that's correct. But it's mainly focused on the fact that it's like an anti-abortion think tank, and it's like quite hard right, and it, 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 it's totally willing to fuck with like civic liberties in a way that's in line with a hardline evangelical political stance. However, 
that's not the whole story with the Heritage Foundation. The Heritage Foundation started in like the Reagan era and it originally started as a multi-purpose conservative pressure group that was oriented towards all of the general conservative anxieties of the Reagan era. And it kind of rode this gravy train of influence all the way through like Bush 1, Bush 2, into the Obama era, and eventually got to the point where it pulled a lot of the strings in terms of setting up the Trump government. The Heritage Foundation is very, very influential. They were sufficiently influential in the 1980s that they were like pushing the Reagan administration to adopt very, very specific defense policies. Uh, they pushed Bush, they pushed like Bush Sr. into um, adopting a, a, like certain stances in relation to the Gulf War. They are very influential in American politics, in American right-wing politics, sufficiently influential that we're actually probably going to do a whole episode about them at one point. But the reason why it's important is that their influence in the UK, although it's relatively new, it should be viewed as deeply concerning, much more concerning than I think we're giving it credit for now because of the things that this organization has experienced doing and because of the way that it interacts with the kinds of civil society groups that we've been talking about. Yes, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I may just be the most ignorant trans person, uh, but to my mind, the way that I and other kind of like online trans Brits have seen the Heritage Foundation is I almost envision kind of like envelopes of money being handed over from some random Planned Parenthood uh, harassers, which is just not the case. And specifically in terms of organizational experience, like that is the real issue with the Heritage Foundation. It's not just, you know, the envelopes of money, which we have seen because they kept crowdfunding all their fucking legal challenges and we knew it was coming from places like this, but it's actually way worse. <laughs> right. It's kind, of like, it's kind of like the difference between... Uh, if, if you were uh, like a horrible member of the American defense establishment and you wanted to like, I don't know, let's say, say fund the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan to go and shoot the Soviets or whatever, then this is the, the difference between um, option A and option B is that like either you can do uh, bundles of money. So you just like fly in some pallet loads of dollar bills and drop them in Kandahar. Or you do um, what the Americans actually did, which is you supply them with loads of weapons and training. The Heritage Foundation is basically doing this on like a civic political level. They are supplying them like the general reactionary movement with political weapons and political training. And with essentially with officers, they, they even supply them with recruits uh, in the form of young and up and coming university trained hyper conservative kid fascists essentially. Um, and this is why we're, prob- this is why we're probably going to do this episode on them because A, they have decades of history and B, it looks like there's going to be a lot of untangling to do. But uh, uh, as a final note, so that we don't do that episode within an episode now, the Heritage Party, which is another micro party that has been set up clearly by the Heritage Foundation, if you, A, the name sticks. And if you look at the website, it's clearly been fully imported from American copywriters is something that we suspect is also going to be like another turf point of convergence uh, if, yeah, if it isn't already it's not with like the the capital f feminist components of, of the turf movement but certainly it's tra- it will be transphobic in general it will focus on cultural marxism it will focus on gender ideology yeah in a more in more of a polish thing rather than a uh, than a helen lewis thing Yes, I think we'll, we'll call it on the, the civic activism bit, but there is, I did find an interesting passage from an article about like the generalized anti-abortion movement in the US, which I think should be considered quite relevant because it tells us a lot about the position we're in now. 
uh, and I'll link this in, in the show notes. It's a, an article on LitHub called How Fringe Christian Nationalists Made Abortion a Central Political Issue. And that the premise of the article is that although Christian nationalists are now seen as having abortion be their central thing, it initially wasn't, and they actually adopted that position later. Anyway, the, the quote's a wee bit long, but I think it's quite informative. In the late 1970s, a curious combination of religious and political activists assembled to ponder the strategy of a new political movement, sometimes by letter or phone, and sometimes in the conference rooms or at a hotel in Lynchburg, Virginia. Some of the more vocal members of the group included Southern Baptist pastor Jerry Falwell, conservative activists Ed McAteer and Paul Weyrich, Nixon appointee Howard Phillips, attorney Alan P. Dye, and Robert J. Billings, an, ed an educator and organizer who would serve as, as Ronald Reagan's liaison to the Christian right. This was an angry group of men. We are radicals who want to change the existing power structure. We are not conservatives in the sense that conservative means accepting the status quo, Paul Weyrich said. We want change. We are the forces of change. They were angry at liberals who threatened to undermine national security with their under unforgivable softness on communism. They were angry at the establishment conservatives, the Rockefeller Republicans, for siding with the liberals and taking down their hero, Barry Goldwater. They were angry about the rising tide of feminism, which they saw as a menace to the social order, and about the civil rights movement and the danger it posed to segregation, particularly in education. One thing that they were not particularly angry about, at least at the start of their discussions, was the matter of abortion rights. Weyrich was the man with perhaps the broadest vision, according to his fellow conservative activist Richard Vigreri. I can think of no one who better symbolizes or is more important to the conservative movement. In matters of religion, Weyrich was personally conservative. He abandoned the Roman Catholic Church, which he believed had become too liberal, for the Melkite Greek Catholic Church after the Second Vatican Council, but his politics weren't necessarily centered on religion. He formed his political creed as a 20-something in the Barry Goldwater Uprising of 1964, and it consisted of visceral anti-communism, economic libertarianism, and a distrust of the civil rights movement. Jimmy Carter's famous religiosity did nothing to redeem him in Weyrich's eyes. Indeed, in 1978 and 79, Weyrich's immediate priority was to make sure that Carter would be, would be a one-term president. Weyrich began to identify, him in, in, identify himself in the late 1970s with a movement whose name Richard Viguerri put on the title of his 1980 manifesto, The New Right, We're Ready to Lead. Weyrich became, became known as the evil genius of the movement, or sometimes, quote, the Lenin of social conservatism, unquote. And Viguerri, who is considered the pioneer of political direct mail, became known as its, founding, as its funding father. From the beginning, the new rights sought, sought radical change. They would establish themselves, quote, first as the, as the opposition, then the alternative, finally the government, unquote, according to Conservative Caucus Chair Howard Phillips. Quote, we will not try to reform the existing institutions. We only intend to weaken them and eventually destroy them, unquote, said Weyrich protege Edward Hubeck, writing for the Free Congress Foundation. We will maintain a constant barrage of criticism against the left. We will attack the very, the very legitimacy of the left. We will not give them a moment's rest. We will use guerrilla tactics to undermine the legitimacy of the dominant regime. The reason why I've quoted this rather long passage is that it is a, it is a direct Xerox copy of the current political model in the West. Uh, the names have changed. Everything else is the same. Like you can substitute in the civil rights movement for Black Lives Matter. You can substitute the rising tide of feminism for the rising tide of feminism, except they're not going to call it that because uh, now they're like, they're, it's, it's gender ideology. 
school segregation stuff, you know, segregation is done economically now, uh, but essentially that again ties into like BLM type stuff. Notably, a lot of the tariffs in the UK are opting in a much more anti-BLM manner, uh, in a, a more anti-BLM direction, and that will feed into how they organize their little bits of civic apparatus. And it will particularly, all of this culture war stuff and the civic apparatus stuff will be particularly relevant in terms of how they present their attitude towards the government. Right, so... Let's do it. Be... Let's do, let's do, let's, uh, let's, um, uh, let's, let's, let's form a government. <laughs> I think I think that should be kept in the recording. Don't cut that out. That's too good. Um, okay, right. So me and E had a short break, and we're coming back to the next component of the episode, which is we're going to talk about our friend Big Gov. Big Gov.com. Big Gov. So uh, yeah, tariffs, transphobes. They they want to they want to influence the reins of power. They want to talk about the government. They want to be in government. They want the government to do things. Ideally to you um it, it rings a lot of bells with what we were saying uh, before our little break about the neoconservative strategy specifically uh, and also regards to the heritage foundation specifically liz truss who is the current equalities minister has spoken at the heritage foundation which implies that their influence is is definitely in the halls of big gov but apart from that what as a main, because, you know, Liz Truss is not a TERF. What TERFs in the main are trying to do with the government has been the GRA and the Equalities Act. Which was a battle they won. Yeah, they absolutely won it. Um, Liz Truss's statement not only gave dog whistle shout outs to TERF groups, but also it was an absolute, you know, it was... It was clearly a result that only came from the TERFs having a resounding victory because when the first GRA was announced, it was a nothing issue. It was kind of the Tories doing the same agenda that they always do, which is like a bit of pinkwashing a la David Cameron mixed with, uh, you know, secretly getting rid of like women and, and gays because they're too expensive. Um, and it only became the thing it became specifically because of the turf. So the result was very much like the turfs are in the house. Um, the actual GRA uh, kind of amendment, which was proposed for any US listeners who might not know why this all happened, uh, was just reform in how trans people get a gender recognition certificate, which is essentially f used for births, deaths, and marriages, and DBS checks. So it doesn't really have a huge impact on your daily life. Uh, it would have been an absolute nothing. It would have been like any other public consultation uh, if it weren't for the TERFs, and therefore, years later, the result was just as banal as the uh, origin story, which is that the GRA... Uh, process remains largely the same, but your application can be online and the fee for acquiring a GRC will be slightly lower. That's it. That's, that's all, that was, all, all that was about. But it speaks to the interest the TERFs have in accessing the halls of Big Gov that they poured so much effort over so many years on such a minor issue, specifically because it was to do with trans people. Right. Yeah. yeah. So... So the way that the tariffs um, normally try to influence government is by doing not necessarily rapidly 
they, they don't necessarily do like rapidly effective things, but they do uh, focus their efforts in a relatively aggressive manner. They tend they go on the offensive quite a lot. Uh, they do they do kind of I guess like a sort of focus group insurgency type thing, where they all try and get the ear of significant people in power, people like Liz Truss or Caroline Noakes, who is a former immigration minister. Apparently, she's now writing like turf shit for the Times. Again, there's that revolving door in action. It's that kind of stuff. So they, they'll they'll do these kind of like uh, relatively strategically aggressive things that then mean that they're in direct contact with like powerful components of these institutions. Particularly powerful individuals is really good because an individual you can convince. This is where it's like really good that they've got these populist reactionary measures lined up regarding like prisons, toilets the NHS spending all of this money on your gender pills, all of this kind of crap, uh, because that is just like music to the ears of a, of a government minister searching for a reactionary policy to trot out if they need something like that for tactical reasons. Yeah, they, they have very much been wo- welcomed with arm's length uh, arms by the Tory party specifically for this. So although like it's not that they are completely in control of the Tories and that every Tory is a turf, they absolutely have access to Tories whenever they want them because it's convenient for the Tories. I should say that we say, we say they have access to Tories, but only, only specific components of like the transphobic scene will, will have access to them. Like Posey Parker is unlikely to be having a direct conversation with a cabinet minister anytime soon. However, uh, people who are in more respectable institutions um, or more respectable kind of like activist groups might. For example, this is where stuff like uh, the Women's Equality Party type tactic works quite well. If you make a comparison to the, to the way that the Women's Equality Party tries to advance um, anti-sex worker stuff, they've acted as like a pressure group in, in, in relation to that policy and have applied leverage to components of the Labour Party. So you get people like Jess Phillips. They've applied pressure to the Tory party because it, it chimes well to both of those parties uh, kind of like political platforms. The Labour Party can push it on women's rights grounds, um, but the Tory Party can can like do a pink washing kind of like fob off to women's rights stuff, and also push like anti-migration things if they're doing anti-sex worker stuff. If you make the comparison fully, make a full comparison to transgender stuff, then again, both parties can utilise the the like the the, the women's rights angle. But also the, the the Tory party will generally benefit more because they can start talking about like traditional family values and similar reactionary terminology when you start talking about like toilets and um and also it's not just that there are in more like turfs more integrated with the institutions who can access this kind of influence but it is true that there have been several mps who have just like allowed random turfs to hang out with them including uh, john mcdonald like we went including in- john mcdonald and we of course Kirstama. <laughs> yeah we went into this on our leftism episode like they they've made very very great inroads to a lot of civic institutions like the trade unions um like the reason why we didn't mention the trade unions that much in this episode is because we talk quite a lot of them about, quite a lot about them in the leftism episode they're extremely tolerated by pretty much everyone in the mainstream british political uh, environment right the toleration for this comes from comes from two angles one quite a lot of people uh, like them two for a lot of these people the fact that they are transphobic in their political outlook is not necessarily their defining feature like the, the transphobic trade unionists are normally trade unionists first and foremost. Transphobic academics are normally academics first and foremost, unless they have made like an academic career out of being transphobic. So that means that they've, they've already gotten in. And then you're talking to someone who you 
if you're if you're one of these ministers you're talking to someone who, with whom you already have like a professional influential relationship with like there's the currency of power has been being exchanged already and then this turf stuff comes along so you kind of you kind of accept it in with the other stuff that you're like package trading with each other for for political clout so there's there's that and there's also kind of like this this like defensive aspect to it where they're able to like maintain their position by the fact that they're like quite reactionary and can engage in like this quite aggressive way i feel like their method is quite uh like dogged and quite attritional they just kind of like keep slugging at particular areas of policy until until something cracks very much what we saw with the gra uh, they are focused on winning very specific legal concessions and I think this is in regards to a niche, uh, like a niche reactionary group having, like being tolerated, if not having direct access to pretty much everyone in British politics. Like the reason this is happening is because of the, like the saying that people use, which was like often trans stuff as the canary in the cold mine for general far right sentiment. And Britain is sliding further and further right. Um, and so whilst all of this kind of like uh institutionalization of transphobia is happening it is happening alongside like other bigotries and other reactionary tendencies i think this is worth pointing out it's not a specifically transphobic conspiracy for most of the people in these corridors of power no like if you look at the if you look at the um the way that the government has begun legislating during lockdown um, against certain areas, certain like critical areas of civil liberties, like the right to public protest, then that has kind of like gone alongside uh, reactionary moves against the Black Lives Matter movement and similar political reforms. So the, these things do these things do interlink, even if the particular agents that are advancing each of these things don't necessarily interlink them in the way that in a, in, a, in an immediately personal way. Like a lot of the a lot of turfs are very anti-lockdown. Nevertheless, they are trying to influence an institution which benefits from implementing rather draconian policies in relation to civil liberties via the medium of lockdown. That's an example of like the way in which there's a great there's there's like a great variety within this kind of like reactionary sphere, and the turfs are within that variety. But even though they are contradictory to some of the other people who are in that variety, it all works together in a kind of perverse, harmonious whole. A rising tide of fascism lifts all boats. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, if we're talking about government, the government is defined uh, particularly by anarchists, a lot of leftists, as being the monopoly of political power, as being the structure in class society that exerts, that has the, the ultimate power to exert the majority of violence and coercive control. It, it does all the legislating. So the reason why this is important to emergent turf strategy is because if something is the center of political power, then and you want to make political change, obviously you have to direct all of your change-making efforts towards that center. All of their efforts, even if they seem to be like vague culture war bullshit, are ultimately directed, intentionally or otherwise, towards this area. And they, if they, if they're like focusing on this ephemeral world of culture war bullshit, where everything's about agitation and inflicting psychological damage or like owning the libs. The reality is, is that the ultimate outcome of that is that the gains made in culture war can only be translated into actual tangible victory if those gains are like mediated through the, the material powers of the state. So you can, it, like a culture, like owning the libs only works if you can turn that into the government 
performing the act of owning after you've just like done it psychologically in the realms of public debate. So accordingly, different like components of this of this institutional strategy kind of interlink with each other. And there's this like this tripartite relationship between the way that like transphobic po politics interacts with the BBC, big media institutions, and how it interacts with the state and how it interacts with like academia. Um, like pro like any kind of program they advance within the realm of, of media stuff and like civic activist stuff it's invariably directed at getting a rule changed at like a higher level whether it's like a societal norm or a law or something like that they're always trying to like change the standards and this is we normally talk of the the overton window in terms of opinions but the overton window also exists in terms of like norms and like lower level legislation and the opinion shift within society gets transformed into a shift within within the greater structure of class politics i think understanding that is pretty critical to understanding turf strategy such as it is yeah i mean i don't know anyone else who is um doing turf strategy studies in quite this way so maybe we're just the professors of turf war of turf war studies now so on that note we that concludes the first part of this episode um we are not just doing two-parters from now on, but while recording this, because it's such a big scope kind of um, episode, we were like, we'd rather have it be two than just try and squish everything into into like, you know, an hour or so of recordable uh, material. Um, I hope people don't hate the two-part the two format, um, but we should be out with part two very soon afterwards because we recorded it all in one go. Yeah, um, obviously, uh, thanks to our friend and comrade Alaska for the music that we're using in this episode, uh, and bye for now. See you in part two.